Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. Back in 2010, Arizona Muse was catapulted into the fashion spotlight. After opening and closing Prada's spring-summer 2011 show, she was soon signed on as a face of the brand. But after years of the modeling grind and some serious personal reflection, the British-American model has swapped the glamour of the runway for environmental activism. It really nearly destroyed me. You pretend you enjoy it because everyone wants you to enjoy it. But the truth is, you'd prefer to be doing something else. This week on the BOF Podcast, I sit down with Arizona to discuss her journey into the fashion industry, her reflections on fashion's contribution to the climate crisis, and why she sees self-care as a form of environmental activism. Here's Arizona Muse on the BOF Podcast. All right. Arizona Muse. Everyone, Ahmed. And welcome to the BOF Podcast. We haven't seen each other since before COVID. So this is a long time overdue conversation. And a lot's changed with you and your life and your direction and your focus over the last few years. I'm really keen to dive into all of that. But I, of course, need to start with your life and where it began and the name Arizona Muse. So first, tell us where this Name. It does sound like a movie star name, you know, like Arizona Muse. Yes, I do get questioned about my name a lot. The story of my name is that my mom is English and my dad's American. They were living here in London, actually, for a long time together. And then when my mom was pregnant, they moved to Tucson, Arizona, which is where my dad was from. They finished Mm -hmm. building a house and moved in. And I was born all in the same two-week period. I think maybe there was a bit of overwhelm happening. And my mom said, oh, maybe we should name her after this desert. And my dad was like, it's not a name. (laughs) But they did. They named me Arizona Grace. And then his last name is Muse. So so, Arizona Grace Muse. Yes. What a beautiful name. Well, thank you. What was it like 
growing up in Tucson, and for those people listening in, say, Cape Town or Shanghai, who've never really traveled to that part of the U.S., like, what do we need to understand about Arizona? Mm, Tucson is a really beautiful place because it's in the Sonoran Desert. And the Mm -hmm. Sonoran Desert is an iconic desert, one of the most important deserts in the world. Actually, I think all the deserts are very important. And deserts are growing, by the way, due to climate change, but we'll get to that later. The Sonoran Desert has saguaro cactus in it, and these are found nowhere else in the world. They are giant cacti with arms, no legs, but arms, reaching up to the sky, and they blossom once a year with these white flowers that come out only at night, right at the tippy top of their heads and fingertips. So you grew up around those cacti. I grew up there. I grew up with coyotes. My parents like to live outside of town a little bit, so we were really in the nature. Everything's sharp. Prickles everywhere. Sharp things everywhere, sharp stones, very dry. I grew up in an arid place. My skin was always dry. We had a swimming pool, luckily, and we swam in it a lot. And my parents were already in the 90s well into the health food movement, so we didn't have chlorine. They were experimenting with alternative pool non-chemical additives to keep the water clear. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we had like a foamy pool, sometimes we had a green pool, and all to not have so many chemicals in our lives. And we were shopping at the co-op when that wasn't cool, and co-ops only sold crusty, hard bread. And I grew up with brown rice and broccoli as my staple and thought it was really uncool. Now I'm really grateful to my parents for being like that and being pioneers in the health movement. But yeah, that's that's what the desert is like. Was it really hot? Oh, it's so hot. How hot would it get? In Fahrenheit, which is what I was using then, over 100 degrees every summer for the majority of the summer. So that's like... More than 30 degrees. It's like 42, 43. Oh, wow. Now it can go up to 48, I think. I mean, it's very, very, very hot. And And is your family still there? They're not still there, but we go there every year now for a little family reunion. Okay. We still love that desert. But my favorite childhood memories, I always say, were of England. When we came to England and we would land in Heathrow and the soft, gentle, moist air would hit my lungs <laughs> and my I could be barefooted everywhere and things were squishy between my toes. I love this It's all relative, country. right? Because everyone here complains about the damp and the weather. But I like if you're coming from a really it. dry... <laughs> arid place. This must have felt... Water is sacred. I grew up really with the understanding that when water falls from the sky, you say thank you. Right. And oh, wow. and I, it still sits with me. So you thank yourself a lot here in London. Oh, yes. I am <laughs> so grateful for the rain. It, it really puts me in touch with my deepest gratitude for planet Earth on an almost daily basis. <laughs> okay, so that begs the question, how does someone go from the arid desert the Sonoran Desert in Arizona to the fashion industry? Like, what were the, like, key moments along the way that that got you into... Honestly, it was because I happened to grow to be 5 foot 10 and have a certain bone structure in a certain era when that was considered beautiful. It's that simple. It was just random. (laughs) There was nothing that led me to fashion. There was nothing that prepared me for fashion. I have my dad's an art dealer in ancient art. My mom is a psychotherapist. Yeah. I didn't grow up exposed to fashion. I think the only exposure I had as a teenager, an early teenager, was when I started overplucking my eyebrows when I was 14. My mom bought me a Vogue magazine and said, Look, the models don't overpluck their eyebrows. <laughs> and that was the first time I'd read Vogue. And I don't think I read How it. old I think were I just you? Looked at the pictures. 14. 14. Yeah. So someone must have scouted you or how did that happen? Yep. A dear friend who became my honorary godmother, she had been a model for a long time and really loved it and had a great experience modeling. And I met her in Santa Fe where I was living at the time because I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and then Santa Fe, New Mexico, which Mm -hmm. is a pocket of the art world. And my dad needed to be there. So we moved there. And it was also a very beautiful, different kind of desert, a high desert in the mountains, in the snow, but beautifully warm in the winter, in the summer, excuse me. And so I was kind of scouted by Claudia was her name, and we're still great friends. And she took me to L.A. to meet with agencies and took me to Paris to meet with agencies. And that was how I began modeling. And I was 18 years old at the time. 
And I modeled a little bit and I moved to New York and it wasn't going that well. I wasn't enjoying it or getting it. I had never done the circuit of fashion shows. And then I got pregnant. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be fat forever. That's fine. I didn't really like modeling anyway. No worries. I'm going to go and be a farmer. And I had my son when I was 20. And I was living with my mom at the time in Massachusetts, where she had moved to, which in this area of Massachusetts, Western Mass, she was in Great Barrington. There are a lot of really spectacular small farms doing mm -hmm. incredible regenerative agriculture. Before that word, regenerative was really a, a big deal. So that was kind of my plan. And then I wasn't fat anymore when he was one. And I was like, well, maybe I should try it. What if? What if I don't try modeling again? And what if I always wonder what could have happened? Mm -hmm. And so this is how I then moved to New York with my son when I was 21. And I went back to the career that I hadn't yet started that was kind of unfinished business. And I gave myself six months. I said, I'm going to try this for six months. If it works, I'll carry on. And that's where I should have had a bigger plan. I didn't have a real strategy for if it did work. I wish I had, let me tell you. And I only had a strategy for if it doesn't work, then I'm not going to stay in New York and I'm going to move back to Massachusetts and do the farming idea and healing. I wanted to be a healer. And um, I'm really into alternative medicine. So it did work. And, and what clicked the second time around? I was skinnier. Really? Yeah, really. I was not a chubby teenager. I was skinnier. And it's sad to say it, but I have to say it. It's true. That's what clicked. My face didn't look different. I wasn't behaving differently. That's and so what this clicked. was around 2010, 10. 2011. And so when I think to fashion mm. in that era, mm. I think about models like... Sasha Pivovarova. I think about all those Eastern European models. Yes. Everyone looked kind of the same. Mm -hmm. And I was enough like them. And you were enough like them. And you opened and closed a Prada show. Yes. In 2010. Yes. There was a little backstory to that for yeah. the fashionistas in the room. So that was my first show season. And I had a worldwide option from Balenciaga. But Balenciaga is that the last... That was Nicolas Gasquier's Balenciaga. Yes, amazing. Yeah. Their show is the last show in Paris. Yeah. So when you get a worldwide option, that means, and it's exclusive, that means you can't do any other shows before that show. But you can do shows after. But obviously with their show, it means you can't do any shows that whole entire season. And we said no which was a huge risk because they're an amazing brand. I love, I still love Balenciaga so much. And we said no because we thought that we'd take the risk that I probably would do some really great shows. And that was a really good choice. And in the end, they also had me to do their show, thank goodness. And I did open and close their show. But then that show. means you had to do castings like every other model and you didn't know if you were going right. to get cast in the Absolutely. Shows. So I had that experience of running around to castings and really not knowing what was going to happen. So tell me about that Prada show. And who was the casting director? Do you remember? Ashley. Ash oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, Russell. It was Russell ah. and Adam. Yeah. So how does that all work? That you get to open and close probably the most important fashion show in Milan, one of the most important fashion shows in the whole world. And then do their campaign after as a semi-exclusive. And again, they said, we want the full exclusive on the campaign. But YSL said, we also want her. And they agreed to share the exclusive. So I did wow. both their campaigns so my first season. So that's how hot your career was the second time around. Yeah, it was amazing. And I was so shy and scared that I was mute pretty much <laughs> at the time. Now I'm 35. I'm old. And I don't care anymore. So I can say everything. I think your question about... What is the casting experience like? It's terrifying. But at the beginning, I was doing so well. I was climbing the ladder. I didn't notice that I was terrified because I felt good because I was on these endorphins of like, everyone likes me. They think I'm important. They want me here. Yeah. And they're saying yes. And I'm getting treated specially. Right. And there's a hierarchy. And I can tell that I'm, I'm not at the bottom of it. But remember, I had no idea what was going on because this was my first season in the fashion industry. And... I wish things could be different. I wish that models didn't have to have this absolutely terrifying experience in casting, which is also, by the way, doesn't happen between working, norm normal working hours. No. 
the whole casting experience can last all night, then the fitting experience can last all night, and you're not only doing one. So you go from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next for a month. I had a young child. I was totally raw and exhausted. So would you travel with your son while yeah, you were doing... Oh, wow. Because he was still How a baby. How did you manage that? I had a wonderful nanny who was traveling with me and got burnt out after the first year. <laughs> Bless her. And... I would never do it again to me or to my son. Really? It's, I really wouldn't. And I know I got a lot out of it. I know I won. And I'm so grateful for all the things that my modeling career has allowed me after that. And it's been a blessing in so many ways, but it also nearly destroyed me. It really nearly destroyed my mental health in a time when mental health wasn't a phrase that I was really familiar with. And you no were the skinny, about it. white, tall girl. And you were like the yeah. model yeah. Of what they were looking for, and you still felt that way. Absolutely, which is a really important point to make. Yeah. I had the best experience, and it was crap. <laughs> so can you imagine? It's so hard. for and, and what's not hard about modeling, let's go over that, because yeah. sometimes people say, oh, it must be so hard, you must be so tired because it's long hours. And I'm like, no, 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 long hours are not a problem. I have stamina for that. What's hard about modeling is people are judging you all the time on what you look like, which you can't do that much about. They don't even judge you on what you wear. It's just purely what you look like. I, I remember one time a friend came with me to Milan Fashion Week and was going to castings with me a little bit, and she was shocked. She was like, wow, every room we walk into, people feel like it's okay to comment on your physique. That's not normal. Openly. Openly. Oh, you look so brown. Oh, you've been in the sun a lot. Oh, you're looking really healthy, which, by the way, is the means. most terrifying phrase to a model because it means you look fat. You look like you've been eating food. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's some parts of modeling that are not hard at all. It's really draining, really draining on your emotions. I remember feeling like my life force was receding out of my limbs. I remember looking at my fingers sometimes and thinking, are they alive still? And the I'm an introvert naturally, so having 60 pairs of eyes on a photo shoot set on me all day long is really exhausting. I've learned how to manage my energy and keep my energy levels up because... There are a lot of expectations on models. So everyone wants the model to come in and be the center of attention and happy and fun and excited and speak to everyone and chat. And that's really hard if you're not an extrovert. But I've learned to be able to do that. But what's really important for me is to know exactly when the day is finished so that I can pace myself. Imagine doing a marathon and you didn't know how long it was. Right. Terrible. But if you know how long it is, you run till the end and then, then you stop running. And then you, So I learned that if I can just get to the end of the day, and then I can walk out and slump. That's how drained I was. And I got so drained that, that my brain stopped working. And I also hadn't been to university. So I had no proof to myself that I had a brain that could work. And I began to feel really, really dumb. And then it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that models are dumb. And also people come to models and often say dumb things to them. Like, for instance... If you're a model, people tend to talk to you about really boring, unimportant subjects. I don't know why this is. And I, I, well, it's probably because generally people think that models aren't thinking about anything. And so they ask you, oh, do you want a coffee? And you're like, no, you're the 16th person who's asked me that today on this set. No, thank you. And you smile through your teeth because right. you, you don't, it's not this person's fault. They're just being lovely. But the whole system means that nobody's said anything of meaning to me all day. They've only just asked me if I want a coffee. Huh. <laughs> and, if, and you're trying to keep your energy up through that. And it's just a very strange role to play. And I've had many conversations with models and through gathering this kind of data, if you could call it that, I've realized that many models have this experience that it's not a job that you enjoy very much. You pretend you enjoy it because everyone wants you to enjoy it. But the truth is you'd prefer to be doing something else, but you're being paid a lot. Yeah. And so you come back and you keep coming back. Right. And, and it becomes a big moral question in me. When do I stop? Right. When do I start to say no to protect my own self? Yeah. And luckily, time helps. So you get older and people stop asking for you and you go, 
Oh, and you actually feel a sense of relief. A huge sense of relief. Because I would imagine that, and I obviously don't understand that lived experience, but just putting myself in the shoes of someone who's making a living based on the way they look and looking young and skinny, and, and then we start losing that, don't you get worried that you're going to lose your livelihood? Yes. Yes. I was so scared my whole career. And as you said, it went well. I should have been feeling on top of the world. I wasn't. I was scared every day that no one was going to choose me tomorrow, that it would all be over tomorrow. And I have no power about it because models don't reach out to clients and say, I'd like to work with you. Shall we do this project together? Models just wait for job options to come in through their agencies from the clients, and then they can just say, yes, I'd like to, or no, I wouldn't. That's the only power we have. Social media has changed that a lot, and I'm really grateful for this transition in modeling where models have a much more empowered career now compared to how it was when I began. So what was your best moment? Because I also want, and I'm sure there were some moments which were amazing, right? What's the high point? Do you know what? The high point, weirdly, has come now that I'm older and fatter than I've ever been. Now when I do a shoot, because I'm honest with myself about why I'm doing it, and that it's something that I don't like to do unless there are certain boundaries in place. Now when I do a shoot, it's really more enjoyable. So last year, I was asked to shoot a Chloe perfume. And I was asked because of my activism. The whole concept for the shoot was falling in love with the earth and building a connection with the earth and realizing that everything we need comes from the earth and to be grateful. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And the shoot was for 10 days in Chile. And there were... 10 days? Yep. There were five other models. It was extraordinary what happened on that shoot. I can tell you honestly, I loved every minute. First of all, the five of us, four other models, the five of us connected so Who deeply. else was there? Amrit... Amrit from India. Amrit from India. Yeah. Love her. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What an extraordinary person. Yeah. Devin Garcia, uh-huh. also beautiful person. Yeah. Wow. Malika from Djibouti. Okay, I don't know Malika. Oh, her heart, her soul. She's yeah. so extraordinary. And then there was Hikong as well from China. Okay, yeah. The five of us really connected. And because I was older than all of them, it became a therapy session for all of us. And I said out loud for the first time that I'd ever said out loud to models, and they heard for the first time they'd ever heard out loud somebody saying, modeling's not fun, is it? It doesn't make you feel good about yourself. And we all kind of went, whoa, and we relished in this truth that we could share with each other. And it created this wonderful experience where paradoxically, we ended up really enjoying that shoot and yeah, because really there's enjoying like a human modeling. connection because I think sometimes the mechanics mm-hmm. and the system and the pressure and the pace. And the isolation. The isolation. Any job that has those characteristics is going to feel a bit empty, no matter how glamorous it might seem on the outside. Absolutely. Which kind of brings me to... The thing you alluded to just a couple minutes ago, which is at some point you start slowing down. And you mentioned your activism. So what was the like pivot point there where you went from kind of identifying as Arizona Muse, the model and mother, to Arizona Muse, the activist? Like, how did that happen? I'm smiling so broadly as you ask this question because I love this time in my life. It really was huge for me. I came out of this time where I felt like I was drowning in this puddle of nothingness. And I was 26, 27 years old. And I finally came into contact for the first time ever with my passion. And it healed me, is the short side of the story. And the long side of the story is I found that I was interested in the earth. And this happened because I was invited to a lunch that was for a charity called Synchronicity Earth that I now am deeply in love with. And the founder, Jessica Swayden, has become a mentor of mine. And through her, she introduced me to Nina Morenzi of The Sustainable Angle, Mm -hmm. who also became a mentor of mine. And I found sustainable fashion. And I found that I'm really fascinated, like very nerdy about supply chains. I really want to know everything about materials, how they were made, where they came from. And what I learned, this was my penny drop moment, was that textile materials, cotton, silk, wool, 
are grown in soil mm -hmm. by farmers. Mm -hmm. I knew my food was grown in soil, and I knew that it came from a farm, but I had never once considered that my clothes also come from farms. That was just wild for me to go, how did I not know this? Working at the center of this industry, working with all the most amazing fashion houses that we've all heard of, how is nobody talking about the farmers who mm -hmm. grew our clothes for us? And this was then my learning journey. And I went to spend a lot of time on farms, which, remember at the beginning, I told you, I almost became a farmer when I was 20 years old and pregnant. So this was kind of full and circle moment. I had moment. no idea that it would come back in this way. This desire to grow things and be in nature has now turned into what how I proudly identify myself as an activist. And that word I know is controversial because often it conjures up images of people shouting and being aggressive and demonstrating on in parking lots and and actually that was a time in activism and that is absolutely necessary i am so grateful to all the activists who have done that because they paved the way for the next form of activism which is the one that i engage with which is regenerative it's actually a lot about self care how can i take the best care of my being so that my being can be in the best shape that it can be to be in service to the other beings around me who are human, to the other beings around me who are non-human, animals, birds, insects, and to the biggest being of us all, who is the earth, who and we all live And why on. do you consider that a form of activism? Because it changes the way you live. It changes the way you live from the core and essence of your being. I yeah. walk on the earth differently because I'm building a relationship between myself and the earth. And every step I take is a connection with the earth. It sounds a bit abstract, but now I've been doing this for years after reading books from many indigenous authors and understanding that there are humans all over the world who live with a visceral connection to our planet. This is what people call grounding. It is. It's what people call grounding. Yeah. It's what people call a connection to the sacred. There are many different forms of it, and it comes in many different ways from all over the world. And every one of us can become this way of of interacting with the earth. Okay, so let's take this renewed connection and discovery you have with the earth and connect it back to fashion. Because as someone who worked in the very heart of like the consumer culture of fashion, which is something I'm always very conscious of myself. Looking back now with this new awareness that you have on the world that you were so intrinsically a part of, you, know, you were basically a model to sell more stuff. How did that all shake out in your brain? I started to feel badly that I was responsible for selling all these things. Yeah. But very quickly, I began to feel empowered by learning about how it could be done differently. And my brain woke up. And now it works really well, actually. And I'm a systems thinker. I love problem solving. I really like to future vision. And any system, I love learning about it. And as I learn about it, I want to change it. I really want to change it and see a better way forward for this system so that it can serve better its stakeholders, the people who live and work within it and function within it, and the earth who it sits within. We'll be right back with more on the BOF Podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. With this systems thinking, this problem-solving mindset that you have, I would love your assessment of what you think the biggest sustainability challenges the fashion industry has to tackle. I would say there isn't one biggest problem to tackle. We need to tackle a lot of them at once, including the economic system that we all function within. So right now, down at one end of the fashion supply chain are farmers, as we talked about. Farmers sit in an absolutely absurd economic scenario. They have to cover for themselves the cost of buying the seed, planting the seed, cultivating the seed until it's a crop, harvesting the crop, and then they can sell it after that. But when they planted the seed, they don't even know how much they'll be able to sell the crop for because there's a market value to these crops. They're commodities. What a ridiculous economic system to surround somebody in. And one of the really negative impacts of this system that's surrounding farmers right now is that their mental health is suffering because they have debt. Debt is toxic. It makes farmers feel so bad that they are killing themselves at a higher rate than any other demographic in the world. Wow. What? And by the way, With extreme climate change, their livelihood is at stake because, you know, there's so much erosion, there's so many extreme weather events. The security that they would have had from like having a regular income from, you know, toiling the land is not secure anymore. Not at all. And if we look at climate migration, which has started already Mm -hmm. and is going to continue to evolve in really dangerous ways because a lot of our earth is becoming inhabitable. And those areas that are becoming inhabitable are coastal regions because of seawater rise, very hot places that are desertifying, so water is running out in those areas. And these areas are often highly populated. The modeling says that we're going to have roughly 2 billion climate migrants within the next possibly 20 years. Think about that. What does that even mean? I mean, we struggle to accept 8 million climate migrants. In, well, they're not even called climate migrants at this time, but Syrian refugees were mm-hmm. not called climate migrants, but they were migrating in part because of pressures due to desertification right. and pressures on production of food. So 
These are things that are going to affect the fashion industry. They're going to affect absolutely every single industry. And we need to get our smartest minds thinking regeneratively about how to solve these issues in before they become absolutely horrific. Because why wait until these beautiful humans are desperate? When you use the word regeneratively or regenerative farming, what do you mean? How do you explain that concept to people? So the word regenerative is about thinking in a way that makes something better than it was before. So regenerative thinking is when you're thinking in a way that serves everybody's needs. How can you get creative and not just create an, a structure or an economy like capitalism that is going to serve the needs of some but not of others? And when you're farming regeneratively, you're growing crops, sometimes food crops, sometimes non-food crops like fibers or leather, in a way that restores life to the whole farm ecosystem, life within soil. Soil is not just brown dust that has some water in it. Soil is made of trillions of microorganisms and millions of macroorganisms. The macroorganisms are worms and bugs and creepy crawlies, and the microorganisms are tardigrades and other tiny things you can only see through a microscope. Mm -hmm. And they should be well alive. And those little beings are connecting with the mycelial networks underground as well. And they all pass nutrients back and forth to each other, and they pass nutrients back and forth to the roots of the plants. Without this living system under soil, you have to feed the plants fertilizers. And fertilizers, we think, oh, great, plant food. No, not good. Toxic, very toxic materials derived from petrochemical ingredients that come directly from the fossil fuel industry. You're basically worsening the problem. You're worsening the problem because yeah. the plants will eat the fertilizers and will ignore their relationships with the microbial networks under the soil. It's like placing broccoli and ice cream in front of a three-year-old. Which one are they going to eat? They're always going to eat the ice cream, even though it's not good for them. It tastes better. I'd eat the ice cream too, honestly. I love ice cream so much. <laughs> but I love broccoli as well. Remember, it was a staple in my childhood. So that's not the only part of the farm that needs to be alive. There's also biodiversity above ground, insects, birds. So many species of plants can be present in a farm. Our current conventional farming system is about killing everything except for one variety of plant that you want to put in a field, and you want that variety only to grow. That is the worst way of growing anything. Nature hates that. It destroys ecosystems. And it looks pretty to us right now, like, you know, we go into the countryside and we look at a field, we're like, oh, pretty. Now I look at a landscape that is agricultural, so fields, and I see it differently. It doesn't look pretty to me anymore. I know exactly what's happening on those fields. I know how that soil is being damaged. I can see the puddles of flooding. Flooding only happens when soil can't absorb water. It can't absorb water when there isn't root systems in it. When you have a bounty of root systems in water, you rarely have floods. They would be a really extraordinary event. But right now we're seeing floods as normal. They happen so all the time. So what would a beautiful field or farm look to you? now? Like, how should it look? It should look a bit like a forest. So we want to see rich, multifarious, diverse ecosystems of plants and insects. And they and should animals. be loud. Right. Nature is loud. Yeah. When you walk out into nature and you can't hear anything or you hear very little, mm -hmm. it's because it's devoid of the species who belong there. Rachel Carson's book that was written in the early 60s and was really the thing that kicked off the environmental movement in the U.S., it's called Silent Spring. It's about the season of spring that is silent. When the agricultural chemicals started to be used, no birds were singing. The insects weren't there. Mm. You've also maybe heard from the older generation or even two generations ago, when you used to drive a car through the countryside, you'd have to stop every two hours to wipe all the insects off your windscreen because there were so many of them. Now... I've tested this. I could drive for three hours. There's like two bugs on my windscreen. It's terrible. You know what you're reminding me of? It reminds me of when we were all in lockdowns and there hadn't been airplanes and cars and all of the like pollutants that our daily lives inject into the world. And all of a sudden, everywhere in the world, all of these 
creatures and life forms started emerging in places where we had not seen them in so long. I remember someone said like there were dolphins near Venice. Venice. Yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Okay, so one big problem is how we're sourcing the raw materials in the fashion industry. Another big problem that I'd love to hear your take on is just overproduction and overconsumption. The responsibility that both companies and consumers, and I'm using the word consumer intentionally, I don't normally use that word, but in this context, I'll use the word consumer because we're consuming Mm -hmm. too much. What's your perspective on that problem? Look, it's so hard. Obviously, buying less, buying better, really important things. But we need the governments to come in and say, you're not legally allowed to overproduce. Because overproduction, there are two types of overproduction. One is where you guess incorrectly and you think that X many people will buy X many dresses and you make those and you're wrong and they don't. They don't like that dress as much as they liked the other dresses and then you have overproduction. That's kind of... I would call it innocent overproduction. Then there's the other kind of overproduction, which is that many, many businesses, in part because of the retailers, are required to budget for an extra 5 to 20% of garments to be made in case of defects of the collection. This is deliberate overproduction. Everyone knew that nobody wanted that extra percentage, but they were made anyway. What if we made that illegal? What if we said, no, okay, if there's a defect, you mend it. If the button falls off, you mend it. We need our governments to support us in this. And I think that placing the blame on the citizen is an excuse, and I don't like it. The the further I get into this learning journey and activism, the more I see it's really destructive, actually, because it creates a culture of blame. Because then I can look at you and go, hmm, you didn't buy the sustainable one. And you can look at me and go, you fly too much. And we can start criticizing each other and wasting our energy and destroying friendships even over blame. Instead, let's just say, look, everyone is doing what they're allowed to do. Right now, you can walk into a store and quite often there won't even be a sustainable version of what you need to buy. Imagine if you could walk into a store and know that Every single thing that you bought was made with the highest standard available today of technologies to make it in a way that it was regenerative to the earth in its farming, non-toxic in its processing, so dyeing and bleaching, I'm talking about textiles here, and then at the end of its life when you're done with it, which you will be done with it at some point, and even if you give it to somebody else, they will be done with it at some point, and so we need to have a plan for that point at which we're done with these things and they become trash needs to be able to be composted. So that is the full circular economy for fashion, is grown in soil, processed with things that will not harm the microorganisms in soil once it returns to soil and is composted. This is one of the things that I'm working on through the charity that I set up that I'll tell you more about. But Yeah, it's called dirt, right? It's called dirt, yes, because mm-hmm. sometimes in sustainability we take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a charity, and yes, we're seeking donations all the time. One of the things that we're fundraising for is our work with Demeter. Demeter is a certifying body who's seen great success certifying food and wine to be farmed the nature-friendly way, processed the nature-friendly way, and even packaged the nature-friendly way. They work with the movement called Bio dynamic farming. It's a global movement. So good. Wow. The soil on biodynamic farms is really strong. It's full of life. And then what's special about biodynamics is that biodynamics acknowledges and sees that all plants have a life force within them. They're not simply the material of the plant that makes it green through photosynthesis and has fiber in it to hold it up, it actually has a living life force. And biodynamics farms that through the preparations, which are nine tinctures made on the farm of ingredients of mineral, plant, and animal. They are created in a very special, specific recipe by the farmers. And then they often include burying them for six months. Then at the end, when you're ready to use the preparation, you stir it out. And that is the point where the farmer stirring the preparation ingredient into the water, imbues their own intention and connection into this water. It's quite an alchemy that Mm -hmm. happens. And these preparations are working on the harmony of the non-physical of the farm. 
and the connection between our Earth and the other celestial bodies of the planets as they pass by. So a lot of astrology is a part of biodynamics, and it's a very complex way of looking after a complex system, which is nature. So we're working with Demeter to create new standards for the fashion industry to grow our raw materials, including tree fibers, including dye plants, and including mushroom leather as well, process them in a way that doesn't harm the humans who are working with these materials and doesn't harm the earth. And at the end of the life cycle, all these garments, if they're made the Demeter way, will be compostable in a home composting facility, not in an industrial composting facility. They will be food. So for people who want to live a lifestyle, it sounds like the one that you've really embraced a more sustainable lifestyle. And by the way, when we use the word sustainable fashion, it's so overused that it's kind of lost its meaning. I don't know. I think it just kind of like washes over people now. It doesn't really have the impact that maybe it did when we first started using that language. I mean, what, what are the steps someone should take to lead a more sustainable lifestyle when it comes to their connection with the fashion industry? Educating oneself about where things come from is really interesting and the cultural education too. So I've read many books from indigenous authors, so grateful to these humans for coming out and writing down their knowledge. Buying secondhand is is a cheat, I call it. It's the easy way to be sustainable and it's great. It means that you're just not having the impacts that you would have if you're buying a new item of clothing or garment, whatever it is. Also, I would like to say here that if you're like I am and you're one of those lucky people who has money in your pocket right now, it is your responsibility to spend it with sustainable businesses who are making things in a more responsible way. How do you know what a sustainable business is? You have to read about it. You do. You have to read their sustainability page. And here are a few tips for reading a sustainability page. So some of them sound really fluffy. Like you'll read a paragraph or two and you won't really have learned anything or know anything. That's because they're not telling you anything. The ones who are really doing it, you'll read and every sentence you're like, wow, that's cool. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, amazing. That's because they're telling you what they're doing. They're not saying, well, since a long time ago, we've always cared about everything. And in the future, we will do these things. That's just a bunch of greenwashing. It's greenwashing. Yeah. And it's boring. So if you're getting bored on someone's sustainability page, it means they're not doing enough. They need to be paying attention to the materials, to the social side of things, paying people well, working conditions, being safe. I would even say giving dignity to everybody along the supply chain. That's something that we've robbed everyone of. Creativity as well. Look at how creativity is not evenly dispersed along our supply chains. No, it isn't. Fashion is a very creative industry for those at the top. It's not creative for garment workers. And yet they're the ones making our clothes. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see that change. Other things that you can do are... Do clothing swaps with friends, borrow things. Borrowing things is amazing. I love it. And you will have to say no to yourself sometimes. However, I'd like to say, when I say no to myself, it's not that I feel, oh, I can't buy that. That's sad. I say, oh, I don't want that. It's a real lack of desire for this thing. If I walk into a shop and I see a sparkly dress that's made of plastic sequins, for example, I'm like, I don't want it. I know too much. So our knowledge can protect us from making these bad decisions. And learning this, these things has been so stimulating for me. I My life is so much better now. I love my life, which I would not have told you had we been doing this podcast when I was 23 and at right. the height of my career. Not at all. Do you ever feel eco-anxiety or climate anxiety and like a bit overwhelmed by this kind of looming crisis that we all know about that but as you pointed out a couple minutes ago like the transition hasn't happened yet like how do you cope with that what advice do you have to offer on that so those are really real emotions that many people are feeling particularly the scientists who do the research yeah. and and our climate modelers, they are really stressed by what they find. And I heard that the climate models that are published are often on the safe side of what the model showed. And that, to me, really hit home, that, wow, the scientists at the IPCC and other organizations who are researching the ends of the earth to understand what the impacts of climate are right now and what the feedback loops are, both positive and negative. For instance, one feedback loop is that... We had the climate model for how fast the ice was going to melt. But 
when there are pools of water on top of an ice shelf, the pools of water are dark. And as we know, a dark color attracts more heat. So those pools of water drill down into the ice face, which then make it melt so much faster than the original climate model said. That is called a negative feedback loop. There are also positive ones. For instance, as we start this transition that we need to start, where we start living in a way that actually puts us back inside our planetary boundaries so we're not exceeding the limits of our planet. Right now we're emitting enough trash that we would really need about two and a half planets to hold our trash for us. And we're using the resources that we need about three planets to be able to sustain us. I mean, that's crazy. That's that's not going to happen. That's yeah. not real. And so we need to make this change much faster. It would have been great had we started 40 years ago, which is why I I find it a little frustrating when I hear the approach to sustainability being, let's take one step at a time. Right. Like, well, yeah, that would have been so nice yeah. 40 years ago when we had the chance to take one step of, at a time. But right now it's too late. So to answer your question about climate anxiety, climate grief, I feel them sometimes, but not very often. And the reason is because... I feel so purposeful. I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. Through this organization, DIRT, and I invite everyone, come and get involved, donate to us, do whatever you need to do to feel involved. If, if you want to be an ambassador, I'm so welcoming for anybody to come and find your purpose with this organization that has granted me so much purpose in my life. We need a massive lift in consciousness. We need a massive turn in our economy. We need a massive change in our policies. Well, Arizona Muse, that was an amazing education for me and everyone listening. Thank you for your time and the energy and passion with which you're talking about this phase of your career. I'm sure there's more yet to come, but I'm really grateful for the time we spent together. So thank you so much. Oh, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you. Let me just say that you are such an inspiration. You just, you came into this industry and you said, I'm going to do it differently. This is how it needs to be done. And that is what we need. That is bringing us into the new future that we all need. And you're part of this transition already. And it's so cool and so great to be here in this room with you. I love it. Thank you That's for so sweet. Thank interviewing you. me and doing the work that you do. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.